0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started.
1: Hi, my name is Vari, and today I want to come and talk to you all about Mercury Stardust's Safe and Sound of Renter-Friendly Guide to Home Repair. So firstly, I just wanna talk about how visually appealing this book is. It's very colorful, it has lots of gorgeous illustrations of mercury in it, and the front has even got these little rainbow reflective foil details. And then, when you open it, and I don't know why I was surprised by this, it is pink. It is very pink, and I love it. So, for those of you that are unfamiliar, Mercury Stardust is billed as the trans handyman And she is a home repair technician with 16 years experience. And she's well known across social media for her videos teaching you all how to do things in your home, particularly if you are a renter and you can't make permanent repairs or permanent alterations to the place in which you live. So this book is Very on brand as the tagline suggests. It has lots of different problems that you could be facing in your home and how you can resolve them. And it has lots of little illustrations even in black and white of the tools that you'll need to do the job. And what I love actually is that throughout the book, every different section and different problem that you encounter in the material section, it always pictures the tools that you will need just in case you're not familiar, you've forgotten what a Phillips head screwdriver is or which wrench the adjustable wrench is, that kind of thing. I think that's a really thoughtful feature to the book. You also have written instructions and interludes of Mercury explaining the different sections of the book and I love that they're all written in the same way that Mercury speaks in her video I think the way that Mercury communicates is very patient very compassionate and just brings a lot to the table it's very encouraging and then I can't very well talk to you about this book without mentioning my favorite little feature and that's at the end of every single chapter there is an emotional reset where Mercury gives you words of encouragement words of explanation And there's a little QR code and there are QR codes throughout the book and they link to little videos on Mercury's website of her talking you through things, giving you a visual demonstration or just talking to you about why you are worth learning a new skill and why even if you're renting, living in sort of a temporary situation perhaps that No matter where you are and who you are, you are worth having a safe and comfortable home to live in, which I think is really sweet. And even if you're a homeowner, somebody that's experienced in DIY, someone that has a bit of a technical background like me, has maybe some electrical qualifications or was an engineer in a past life, I still think that this book is for you. I think it is worth everyone having a copy of this book on your bookshelf and you will find yourself learning new things you'll find yourself reaching to it as a reference for years to come I expect and I also think that this is um, a gorgeous gift to get somebody maybe the child in your life that is moving away to college the person that's buying their first home moving out into their first independent living situation just really there are so many people that I feel like this book speaks to and just that will find this very very useful and now what I will also do is um, I will pop a link to the book on the Feminist Book Club bookshop.org shelf. And not only can you buy yourself a copy there or buy a gift for somebody there, but you can also buy and donate a copy via this link to the Transgender Law Centre. Just in case you already did pre-order your copy, just in case you've already got an eye on the copy your copy when you go and visit Mercury on her book tour. I will also uh, pop a link to her list of places that she is visiting. She's hitting 52 different book shops across North America. So I do encourage you, if this interests you at all, to pop out and show your support, go and meet Mercury, get your book signed. And I just wanted to rush in and let you all know Just about this gorgeous, really helpful book that I'm just really thrilled with. Just before I pop out on a two-week vacation, I'm literally on my way out the door. So you'll take care of yourselves. Don't forget to wear your sunscreen and drink your water. And I will speak to you all soon.
2: Hi, my name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I am joined today with Marikita to talk about the film Oppenheimer particularly mental anguish the way women were present represented in the film patriotism and the critiques of the damage the testing in los alamos new mexico caused to hispanics so mariquita please introduce yourself and share your initial thoughts on the film
3: hey i'm mariquita guerrera she her pronouns um before we go too far into the film i did want to um quickly address the term Hispanics too yes. okay. um, because that is something that is a pretty controversial term in that mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a way of labeling people using the name of the people who colonize them. And so some folks find it um, pretty objectionable. Uh, I It's not my preferred term. And then you could get in the whole conversation about like Latino, Latina versus Latinx, Latine. And um. This is not a conversation about that. So if folks are interested in learning more about that, uh, Natalia uh, Santana Pollard uh, put together a really great blog post about that that we can link to. Um, My initial impression of the... So I took notes during this movie. (laughs) And um, like halfway through my notes, I wrote, I should have seen the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. This movie was not for me. It was not. I didn't like this movie. I think maybe one of my least favorite movies I've ever seen. Um, I felt like it lacked any of the sort of um, atmosphere that most Nolan movies have, um, while still bringing all those same problematic aspects that most Nolan films have. And I didn't find anything compelling about really any of the characters. It was three hours of my life That I didn't enjoy, spending, and I I have I take a lot of issue with a lot of the ways that he handled that Christopher Nolan handled characters and portrayals and yeah that's kind of that's how I felt about it coming in hot.
2: (laughs) Yes, well I take a fairly opposite um, opinion to that. I thought it was um, a beautifully done film. I thought the score was incredible and really met each moment and really heightened the scene. I liked it because it wasn't so much a biopic about Oppenheimer, but a biopic that tell or a it told a historical moment. Um, what Hollywood tends to do is kind of give you the the glossy or the sexy version of telling a story which is what we'll get into when we talk about the testing in Los Alamos, how that was truly neglected in the story. Um, But I think it really said something about power and control. And it also said a lot about just how people will go into further lengths to keep their power. We saw that with Louis Strauss, who was played by Robert Downey Jr. And just the methods that he took to destroy Oppenheimer and also to um, gain a, a, I believe it was a Senate seat and just how that sort of backfired on him. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of how women were treated in the film, but I do understand why they were treated the way that they were in the film. Um, you had Florence Pugh who played Jean Tatlock, who I thought I, as a character, I felt like she didn't true. She wasn't truly necessary um, because she was more like an afterthought as opposed to a physical presence in Oppenheimer's life. Women in this film were, and, and in this era um you know the the 30s and the 40s going into the 50s were either childbearers or pleasure pleasers um you know they weren't the the stars of the show or the brains or anything like that they weren't supposed to really be in the in the vicinity with these men they were just kind of like at home miserable um and i i think it really I could have done without the women in this in this film and you also had Emily Blunt who played Kitty Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's wife she was a biologist and then she just became a house she was in a relationship and then she became a housewife to Um, Oppenheimer's Child and just the mental anguish that you saw from her is something that really resonates with the time period but I would have liked to have seen the women more in the forefront and Olivia Theralby who I was excited to see because I haven't seen her in any work in a in a while um, she played Lily Hornig and she was a scientist but also just kind of like oh i I'm not going to be someone who just types up the the measurements and things like that. I have an actual degree. Like she really had to advocate for herself instead of just being this person who was like, "Hey, you're a, you know, you're a scientist, you have this degree. Come work with us" instead of just being someone who's on the land.
3: Yeah, I um and I did like a little bit of research into like the Manhattan Project and the women that worked on that. And there was just one woman scientist named in in research. I did found that her name was Leona Wood. So I don't really know why there was a name change. I didn't look into that character's name, um, which I should have, but I didn't. But I really, really, really took issue with um, Florence Pugh's character. Mm -hmm. She was in what, maybe six scenes and three of the scenes she was naked and having sex. And one of the other remaining scenes, um, she was taking her own life because Oppenheimer could no longer see her. And I just felt like the disservice that was done to that actor and to that character were pretty significant. If that's all you were going to do, I mean, she didn't really enrich the film at all, you know, like you said.
2: My thing about Florence Pugh, though, is that she, at the time, like I watched the interview clip of her and she my initial understanding for these actors wanting to be a part of the film is so that they can work with Christopher Nolan, which is okay. That's noted. Um, and for Florence Pugh, I think that she's really trying to push boundaries of beauty and women's standards and just like being vis- literally naked on screen. Like she has no problem with that. So I Yeah, I would have liked to have seen another actor instead of an Academy Award nominated actor who has the caliber of Florence Pugh playing this character. I think it could have gone to a smaller actor and maybe have elevated their profile a little bit. Um, But I want to give some some due to Florence trying to, you know, elevate her career. And and yes, this wasn't the role to do so, but to understand that, you know, you know, she made a choice to play this character.
3: Yeah, I just wish that the character had more to it. You know, I guess, mm-hmm. like, my issue is not um, that she played that character, that the character was sort of a, s- a smaller or neglected role, but that, like, all of the women in this um, film, with the exception of The Scientist, all were just uh, horny for Oppenheimer. And, like, that's all, like, they seemed to really, like do is just reflect his genius and reflect his desirability but like we never really saw why they were interested in him in the first place really Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't like that there was a story being told of like they were attracted to his power his intelligence or his influence or you know his trajectory or anything like that it was just like oh they were just wanted to get in this guy's pants and um and if you have one character like that I, i feel like it's not that noticeable, but to have like all of them sort of be in that position, you know, either wives or lovers, it just felt um, really disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, that's—I mean, that's not even like you know, I think not even the biggest issue, um, really, with the with the film. You know, you talked about like the testing and um, the way that was approached and discussed. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I mean, I think the in the scene in the movie, there, and Latia's um, got like a ranch in like Los Alamos, and he brings people and he says, there's nobody living here. And I just felt like, can you pan the camera over a little bit? Because I think there are, are people living here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and there were, there were communities there, largely of uh, Mexican-Americans and of, Native American people that were, you know, deeply, deeply impacted. Uh, you sent me an article uh, about this, and it was really great, really easy read. Um, we'll we'll link to that too. But, you know, these are folks who have had tremendous health effects and haven't been compensated or considered uh, or even in a lot of ways acknowledged.
2: Yes, and, and the article mentioned that there was sort of like a afterthought which I didn't even see in the film it might have been in the credits or something just about the sort of the terror that happened to these people but it was it could have just been like a a little blurb or something but it certainly wasn't there wasn't a scene in the film there wasn't uh you know before the credits even rolled like we want to acknowledge all the people who were permanently damaged and not just In New Mexico but Japanese people as well like I I saw an excerpt on a news program of just there are survivors and they're not that old just talking about you know one one gentleman talked about his grandmother um, not being by the window and that's how she was able to survive or you know people were putting up clothes on the clothesline just people doing everyday normal things and all of a sudden this bomb drop literal bomb drops on them and completely destroys their lives and they have the remnants of that experience in their memory.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah and they carry it genetically you know and um and I did I I remember that piece in the article and I read that sentence twice because I thought at first that it said that it was that there was an acknowledgement and what it you know what it said was that they wanted there to be just a something just a something you know like uh, the only the closest we get to that um acknowledgement or you know like even a nod to it at all is like during the congratulations scene when Oppenheimer is being feted. And there are all these people cheering and stomping, and he it like goes into this like state where he imagines them being subjected to the bomb and like seeing their skin sort of peel away, and feeling um, that uh, devastation of like what have I wrought? But then it kind of like ebbs, and then it's mentioned very briefly in another scene where he is um, talking about it with um, Truman. He's talking about it with Truman and Truman kind of waves a handkerchief at him, like, you know, here, draw your tears, you know, but that's it. That's all, you know, and um, the rest of the movie was kind of about like the political machinations and the scientific um, aspects of it, which are also valuable. I'm not saying they're not valuable, but it's a three hour movie. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice if there could be, you know, there was a huge human cost and there continues to be a huge human cost to this, that, we just don't acknowledge,
2: yes. And this film is based off of the biography American Prometheus. So it's also, um it's aligning the book a bit with or aligning the film a bit with this book. And yes, I think, um, you know, it, it would have been nice to have those acknowledgments. But again, as I as I mentioned, you know, Hollywood tends to, just show the glossier sides of things. But at what point can you just acknowledge, especially with the information and what audiences desire now is to have a full scope, even if it is the uglier sides of history to really just give like a, you know, one or two scenes about just like the aftermath or just the during of it, or, you know, not just these 10 white men who were just like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to save America.
3: Yeah. This was, I think maybe the whitest, malest movie I've ever seen. I've not ever, not ever at all, but like in a long, long time, like the, the first um, woman doesn't have a speaking line until over 20 minutes. And the first person of color doesn't have a speaking line until like over an hour in, and then never has another one. Like it just was um, really sort of a, a little jarring, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, because there were people of color that were involved in this. There were women that were involved in this and um, yeah, I just wanted those pieces to be like a little bit more fleshed out.
2: And then I also think about how Christopher Nolan is British and the star of the film who plays the title character, Killian Murphy is an Irish actor. So that also adds an element of, okay, you have this British man making the film and the Irishman leading a film that is an American story. And I know that also a lot of people have issues with that. that might, maybe not necessarily with this film, because it gives this idea of white men saving the world, whatever that looks like, or what it looks like to them. But it's also just like you're kind of outsourcing other people telling a, a uniquely American story. Yeah.
3: What do you think that this film had to say about patriotism?
2: Well, the scene that you were talking about where Oppenheimer is fetid, um, you see people wave, waving American flags and they're kind of like in this cabin in the woods situation. That was the first time I actually saw a Black person in this film. There's, there's, this, there's this pan of one Black man in a sea of white people. That's how you're able to see him. But what my idea of patriotism in this film watching it was just okay we're gonna do whatever it takes to be number one the rush to and the funding to have this project come alive was because Russia was already ahead in making an atomic bomb and Hitler at the time was invading Germany and it's like okay well we can't let the other countries do what USA, we're number one, should be doing. So you get the funding to do this project because other people are already months ahead. You see um, the general played by Matt Damon, who's who wasn't the general at the time, but he knew that this project would get him to an upper echelon um, in his military ranking. And um, just all of the efforts being put into making sure that America was going to be able to drop this atomic bomb, and just the the lack of qualms—it was whatever it takes.
3: Yeah, they, there's like a a couple of times they talk about how there's like a almost zero percent chance that it will set off a nonstop reaction that will light the entire atmosphere in fire and kill everyone. They're like, well, it's not, it's not, it's like close to zero, you know? And they're like, well, you know, close to zero is like close enough, you know, close enough for us to like move forward with this. And so they were willing to bear the possible responsibility of ending life on the planet because they really wanted to be first with us. It seems like times haven't shifted a whole lot really with that. We're not, as far as I know, although I'm not in any sort of like secret service organization, you know, pushing forward with anything similar to this anymore, but we're still um, willing to create great risk and great um, pain in the world in order to maintain uh, perceived status as number one.
2: You know, the, the parallels between like the the Senate hearings and the behind the scenes and and manipulating media. It's like, wow, we a lot has not evolved, a lot has not changed. And that was something that really stuck out to me when watching the film is just what people will do in order to have power and the mental anguish that comes when you do have power or you have that sort of regret or you know, you're trying to keep. Keep power, all of that sort of molds together.
3: Yeah, it was interesting, and I'm and I am glad I watched it. I'm not like I don't mean to say that I regret having watched it, even though I really didn't enjoy it. I mm-hmm. do think it was um, an interesting look, and I have been fascinated by this period of time for a long time because it was kind of just poised to be and dynamic. It was like right on the edge of like a lot of things shifting in our society in general and in the world at large um but I'm just disappointed I just wish it had been done just a little bit with all the time and all the money and all the star power they had a tremendous amount of privilege and power I just wish that there had been a few changes Mm -hmm. what would you have liked to see if you were Mm -hmm. in the if you were in the edit room (laughs) oh if they would let me in the edit room um well I really want to know more about the female scientists that worked Um, worked with them you know the the two scenes we get with her are one where she's saying she's not going to do she can't type because they didn't teach that at Harvard chemistry so she can't be their typist and another scene where she's defending her ability to maintain her position on the project because the men think that there might be significant reproductive harm to her and um, you know and she argues back what about your reproductive harm you know uh, which is great response Um, but you know, like what what more did she contribute? We see a lot of the men contributing a lot of things on this project and we see a lot of the interpersonal dynamics between them, but we didn't really get that with her. Mm -hmm. And I wish there had been more of that. Um, I wish there had been a little bit more, I mean, definitely a little bit more about the communities in the area. There's like a couple of mentions of the folks that are living in the area just with, um, Oppenheimer saying, "Well, sometimes Indians come up here to do burial rites, mm-hmm. and after uh, they were done with the testing, saying well, we should give the land back to the Indians," is what he said. You know, and um, Truman says, "No, let's build it back up." Um, you know, the the there's such passing mentions that, like you you, I know you knew about it. Like, give us a little bit more about that, it would certainly even create more dimension with Oppenheimer's character and with the other characters that are involved. It wouldn't detract from it at all, you know? There were other scenes you could have cut that felt sort of repetitive to me that um, created space for these other conversations or these other dimensions or these other pieces of like real life that were co-occurring at the same time. I'm not asking for a revisionist history, right? I'm not asking for them to like, uh, portray women as like equals because women were not seen as equals. I'm not asking them to like be empathetic towards the plight of the native peoples because they weren't. And, but to show a little bit more of that, I think would have really made them be a lot more dynamic.
2: So that is our conversation about Oppenheimer. Any lingering thoughts?
3: No, just thank you for facilitating this. It was great talking with you. And it was nice talking with somebody who had a different um, perspective.
2: Like, Why i appreciate that you you know you said what you needed to say and you know it your points don't need validating that you know oh like oh yeah your points are great you know that and you shared them and you you know you stuck to what you felt and um you know hollywood take listen you know, make sure <laughs> don't don't do revisionist history, but don't, you know, sugarcoat pieces either for the sake of a story, you know, tell a fully fleshed, realized story that includes that's inclusive. Yeah. And with that, thank you for listening. And that's all. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a day.